yesteryear. Ballyhoo. Review. From the Internet. The Jack Benny Convention. Hello again, this is Zach Eastman talking. There will now be a slight pause while you say, we've heard enough of your voice. Stop it. Uh, I am here to introduce You Can't Film Jack, the panel on Jack Benny's legacy in cinema. On the panel with me were the wonderful Catherine fuller Seely and Leonard Malton. Uh, I wanted to take a minute to thank both of them for their wonderful knowledge and insight that they brought to the discussion of a film career that didn't quite take off for Mr. Benny. Along the way we were able to hear some wonderful information about the film industry and film comedy within the time that Jack was in films, and it hopefully provided some folks a bit more food for thought when it comes to Jack's film career. To Kathy, I want to not only thank her for her wonderful contributions before, during, and after the panel, but also her wonderful dedication as she braved the terrible weather afflicting her in Texas to make sure her wonderful Benny knowledge could be there for everyone to listen to. She is easily the hero of this whole endeavor. And to Leonard Malton, my undying thanks to him for taking the time to sit with us and offer his years of knowledge on film history and film critique uh, to the table in his legendary kind and remarkable fashion. I also want to take a minute to thank Mr. Richard Williams and Mr. Walden Hughes, um, whose panel uh, that was following ours, um, I sadly ran a little bit into their time slot. I apologize. Uh, this is completely on me and nobody else um, but nevertheless Richard and Walden were wonderful to listen to afterwards so thank you to both of them for their patience um, as I fumbled through this uh, whole endeavor with two very intelligent guests a special thanks also to Laura Leibowitz my old friend for her encouragement and help in getting this all off the ground to Mr. John Matthews for facilitating the slides and the film clip presented, and to Mr. Ryan Frost of The Real Nerds Podcast for convincing me that I had any right to talk about this subject to begin with. And now, on with the program. Take it away, convention! Okay. So, ladies and gentlemen, um, my name is Zach Eastman. Welcome to You Can't Film Jack, the cinema of Jack Benny. Um, I realize that it should have been called the Beverly... Oh, here we go. Here's our clip. Reactor dreads. What, darling? What? Someone walked out on me. Oh. Tell me, Maria, am I losing my grip? Oh, of course not, darling. I'm so sorry. But he walked out on me. Well, maybe he didn't feel well. Maybe he had to leave. Maybe he had a sudden heart attack. I hope so. If he stayed, he might have died. Maybe he's dead already. Oh, darling, you're so comforting. <laughs> All right. So, ladies and gentlemen, that was a clip from To Be or Not To Be done by the great Ernest, Ernst Lubitsch. Not Ernest. That's Ernst. Um, and uh, my name is Zach Eastman, as I said up at the top. Um, I uh, There will be no slight pause while everybody shouts who cares, because we've heard that reference a couple times at this convention today. Um, and I'm not about who repetition. <laughs> Thank you, Laura. Thank you. You're so um, we are here today, we're going to be covering one of cinema's forgotten legends. And by forgotten, I mean many folks beyond this convention have forgotten he even made any films. Well, except for the one we just saw a clip from. 
Um, we are assembled here today to talk about the cinema career of Mr. Jack Benny. And um, for anybody uh, who is wondering about why the heck I'm doing this and not anybody else, um, I am a podcaster for Real Nerds Podcast and Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Um, but I'm also a Jack Benny fan. Um, I've loved Jack ever since I was 10 years old. Um, joined the fan club here that Laura set up when I was very young. And uh, one of the things that there are two things about Jack's career that fascinate me. One is his violining, violin playing. And the other is his cinema career, which has been the butt of many jokes by himself on his own program. Um, from his film debut in 1929 up until his death in 1974, this cinematic journey has been wrought with disappointment, questionable creativity on the part of a studio system, opportunities missed in the wake of a changing comedy landscape, uh, several factors. And this journey reflects a few but important factors in filmmaking and film production today that continue to permeate the atmosphere. Um, and before I introduce our lovely guests, um, I wanted to take a minute to kind of summarize Jack's film career, if I may. Uh, John, if you want to pull up that uh, slideshow for us, we'll get that started. And then head on over to the next slide. So, uh, Jack had a career in film that spanned over the course of 18 films, and that is not counting cameos, the short subjects, the Vitaphones, um, or the mouse that Jack built. Um, only to be or not to be would stand beyond the immediate years of its release as a classic. And the other 17 have become unfortunately uh, forgotten because they are films that uh, bring up an important point, which is nobody really knew how to handle Jack on film. Um, uh, some of them were more successful than others, uh, but none of them tapped into Benny the actor. More often than not, the realities at hand were dealing with Benny the radio personality. Uh, the Benny persona on radio and television evolved and grew from the last days of his vaudeville act into the character we know today. John, if you want to switch the slide, I'll give our uh, audience the traits uh, known for Jack Benny. His persona consisted of slick-talking MC, sophisticated monologist, would-be Lothario, quick-tempered and easily annoyed by ridiculous surroundings, penny-pinching miser, riddled with vanity, and of course, my favorite, a grade-A ham. Uh, and... All of these factors, in one way or another, play into the films that Jack made that were not to be or not to be, and to be or not to be ends up being the one that connects it correctly. Um, in these 17 films, only three captured the Benny persona in its purest form from the radio show, um, but it, in consequence carried over the baggage of the radio show, being that it's not on the radio. These films were Man About Town, Buck Benny Rides Again, and Love Thy Neighbor, or as I've re lovingly referred to it, uh, the Mark Sandrich Trilogy Special Edition. Um, John, if you want to push the next slide. Um, these three were produced and directed by Mark Sandrich with them. Uh, with, I, I, there's a, a fascinating revelation into the philosophical and business-related discussion of films based on radio comedies. This is a subject that carries echoes into today whenever we wish to engage on Twitter or any form of social media about streaming versus theatrical or intellectual property dominance versus original non-IP stories. Um, these films all draw on Jack's radio persona spanning from 1937 up into the late 19, year 1940. Um, in that effort, they worked in Benny's supporting players, such as Phil Harris, Eddie Rochester, Anderson, um, and even Mary Livingston, and eventually Fred Allen. Um, these films have... Um, 
have a debate amongst the legitimacy of films based on radio comedies I mentioned. There are um, we are going to be talking to one of our guests who dug up a lot of information into how uh, critics of the era perceived uh, this adaptation of sorts, and not just with Jacks, but but other radio comedy adaptations that came by. Um, one thing that we're going to get off the bat is that Jack clearly wanted to be a film actor. Every indication from his elation of his work with Lubitsch to his continued desire to look for film properties after 1945 and his eventual desire to jump into the role of Al Lewis for Neil Simon's The Sunshine Boys, um, the film directed by Herbert Ross, one through line that can be traced unequivocally is the rarely was Jack allowed to step outside that box that radio and later TV would put him in. As evidenced through his abilities to play into more subtle moments with Lubitsch, the fault cannot entirely uh, lie with the success of the persona. It also has to come with the people who are honing it. And there were many factors, and what we have left is an 18-film legacy mostly available to those who seek it out, and that will be our talk of the day. Um, And I want to address this up front. Um, I want to state that any harshness we give these films, any of our individual opinions on it, I speak for the panel when I say that one of the true beauties of each of these films is that there is yet another way to enjoy some time with Mr. Benny. And that's a joy I know that many of us here can enjoy beyond a shadow of a doubt, um, which is a Hitchcock movie, not a Benny movie. But anyway, um, enough of me waxing philosophical and getting all film twittery. Um, We're going to uh, get into it. I'm going to introduce our first guest. First off, we have a woman here who has done the work that many of us in Benny fandom have dreamed of reading. In 2017, this film radio television professor at the University of Texas dug into the deep recesses of the Benny vault and swirled it into a masterstroke of radio and media history and cultural analysis of Jack Benny and radio comedy called Jack Benny and the Golden Age of American Radio Comedy. Uh, more recently, she has gone on to further into the study of Benny by rediscovering and publishing for posterity the scripts from Jack's earliest years in radio for episodes that have no known resist- existing recording. With her large multi-volume series, Jack Benny's Lost Radio Broadcast, written by Jack uh, Benny and Harry Kahn, uh, now available through Bear Manor Media. She is also unabashedly and wonderfully a fan of Benny films that feature everyone's favorite polar bear, Carmichael. And please welcome Catherine fuller Seely. Oh, thanks, Zach. I appreciate it so much. And uh, you see me outside because we're having an ice storm in Austin, and I lost my internet yesterday. And so as long as I have uh, some some charge in my phone, here I am outside. But delighted to talk about the subject. You're absolutely right that um, Hollywood history has pretty much brushed radio films, if you will, as well as Jack Benny under the rug. In in part because um, on the face of it, they were very rival mediums. And on the face of it, they were hated in the 1930s. They hated each other and were jealous of each other. But each one needed the other. Didn't a radio get so much glamour from from borrowing Hollywood stars in big parts? And then what Hollywood didn't want to talk about is that any picturization of a radio star made tons of money um and so uh each found something useful in playing in the other sandbox yeah uh that's indeed to jack benny's credit as well as to the sad state of some of the things he got put in just because uh some hollywood studio thought that uh people across the country would especially outside of major cities would pay uh their quarter or 50 cents to see their favorite radio star. Right. And it's a, it's a situation that we're going to get into as we dive into it. Cause we've got seven films to talk about. And, uh, 
you know, we've got a we've got a professor of Benniology here, but we've also got a film critic. Um, I'm an armchair film critic. This gentleman is an actual critic. Um, our second guest. Well, it's going to be an understatement to say that he spent a lifetime making sure that young whippersnappers like me have a movie history to even hold on to. Um, he is a film critic of great renown who spent many a year through his time at Entertainment Tonight letting us know what would play at our local movie theaters or, in the case of my generation, multiplexes. Uh, when he was not giving us the down low on the latest he was given up he spent much time and effort educating us on the cinema of the past providing much needed resources into the history of animation with of mice and magic uh revealing the astounding truths behind those little rascals under hal roach with the little rascals the life and times of our gang and he even took some time to contribute his thoughts and knowledge on the subject of radio with his wonderful love letter the great american broadcast um that he is also responsible for two important moments in american history he introduced the satellite of love to the film Gorgo, and uh, he is the only noteworthy critic, to my knowledge, who brought up Jack's cameo in the movie Deadpool 2. Please welcome Leonard Malton. Yay! Well, thank you. Thank you. And, and uh, I'll take any credential you give me, any association that's positive. I'm all for it. I'm 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 going to tell you right now. I'm very happy that you survived your attack with the gremlins. Um, that that, that I'm very happy to see you are still well and safe after all that. That's that had to be a nightmare. Um, <laughs> uh, and I I want to say right off the bat, guys, thank you for agreeing to do this because ultimately this is a discussion that we we don't have a lot of information. Until now, thanks to a lot of people doing work on Jack's films via the radio, thanks to Kathy's book. And also, um, we've been fortunate, for the most part, companies like Warner Archive and TCM Archive have put out copies of Jack's films that are available. And I'll, I'll, I have copies here that I'm going to show for people as we go through the seven films. The only three films that do not have a physical copy are the Mark Sandridge trilogy. So we don't have physical copies of Man About Town, uh, Buck Benny Rides Again, or Love Thy Neighbor. Um, but, what about The Meanest Man in the World? Oh, we d I do have a copy of that in my hands well, from 20th Century Fox archives um, when that was Oh, that's going. right. They were doing uh, DVDs on demand. Yes, they were. And uh, what's more, I'll just show that one right now. There we go. You see? There we go. Nice. Some Priscilla Lane in there. My lovely Pris Priscilla Lane. Um, that's a film that does feature Eddie Anderson as well. And we will get into that talk as we go through the Mark Sandridge trilogy. But I want to start off um, with a uh, uh, Jack's film debut. Now, Jack uh, was initially brought out in 1929 to MGM by the boy Wunderkind Irving Thalberg, recently seen in the movie Mank. And uh, uh, he... Uh, he he loved what he was be able to do, and he put him in a film called The Hollywood Review of 1929. Um, the Hollywood Review is basically on its surface a vaudeville vanities type affair like an Earl Carroll um, or a Zekefield Follies. Um, and I wanted to get your guys' thoughts on it in terms of this is the first time we see Jack on screen, but it's also – correct me if I'm wrong, Leonard, because I think this is the first – like sound film appearance of uh, Laurel and Hardy. <laughs> I believe so. I, I, I don't have the exact chronology in front of me, but uh, it, it was in 1929 that their first talkie shorts mm -hmm. made at the Hal Roach studio were released to theaters. And, and I'm not sure how they uh, dovetail 
with MGM's release of, of this feature. Right. The, now, the, the, the film in question deals with several acts going through, and Jack hosts as one of two MCs in the piece. Um, the other, of course, being... Uh, uh, oh, God, I had that info on me. God, gosh darn it. I'm sorry about that. Um, he was one of the two MCs that served under this. Uh, oh, it's proceeded. Conrad, Conrad Car- Nagel. Conrad, Conrad Nagel, Nagel, that's right. Yeah, Conrad Nagel, thank you. Sorry, pulling up my notes and it's, I'm, I'm so silly. Um, but uh, anyway, the this review comes as MGM is finally getting into the sound game. Sound enters cinema um, in, in its most commercial form with The Jazz Singer, which is a partial sound film. It's not completely sound. It's about 60-40. Um, with, of course, uh, Al Jolson uh, singing uh, several songs that uh, wooed America's hearts. Um, and MGM was kind of late to this game uh, to get the um, uh, to get the sound ball rolling. Um, but once they did, they decided to throw out musicals and musicals were for a time uh, a great way to get people into sound films um, because they provided basically an easy access route for people to watch. Broadway acts of the era. This film not only has Stan and uh, Stan and Ollie in it, but it also has John Gilbert doing Romeo and Juliet in sound. Which John Gilbert, uh, this was this is the, this is a rumor that needs to die. Is is that apparently people think that that's what killed his potential in sound was that people thought he had a squeaky voice, and the answer is no. He sounds just fine. Um, so um, so I would say that um, uh, it's interesting that Jack finds himself in some interesting moments in film history, and it starts off right from the get-go. Well, anytime you, you have um, uh, uh, what's-your-name-in-your-pocket. Um, <laughs> yes, that is something I wanted to bring up because he's also at the forefront of special effects that don't get perfected until Bride of Frankenstein. Um, Bessie Love. It's Bessie Love in yep. his pocket. Yep. And um, if, you, if you've ever watched the film, anybody watching, if they've never watched the film, Jack pulls, him out of, pulls her out of her, his pocket and then she grows and then it looks like Jack has just seen the devil. It's, it's kind of amazing the way that it all plays out. Um, and uh, what's more, there's also, we get um, you, uh, Cliff Edwards um, who played Jiminy Cricket. Um, and, uh, he's actually very prominent throughout the movie. Um, Jack overall is doing his vaudeville act. He is doing his MC monologist act. Um, now I wanted to ask you both, um, and I'll start with Leonard. Um, Leonard, when you watch a film like, uh, Hollywood review of 1929, I, I have with me the, your TCM classics guide and you, said something about this being a curio for film fans. I was wondering how you, uh, have you, uh, do you have any way to like kind of explain to people what the value would be in watching something like Hollywood review of 1929? Well, uh, I couldn't, uh, in good conscience recommend this film. (laughs) Anybody who isn't immersed in the time period, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, if I was trying to interest, uh, young people in, uh, early it would time. not be this. No, this would not be a good choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is not the gateway drug to <laughs> classic Hollywood cinema. Uh, but it, it's useful for other reasons. It tells you very clearly um, 
uh, who was popular. Uh, it, it solidifies each person's screen persona mm -hmm. as developed up to that time. Although it's it's a little off kilter because uh, those those personalities were developed in silent film, mm -hmm. and so they were like John Gilbert. They were starting from scratch with the coming of sound. Yep, and um, so it's it's it it's a mirror of that one moment in time, mm -hmm. and and as such, you know, valuable for that. Yep. And I, 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 I want to say that like something that I've been learning and doing side research on folks like the Marx Brothers is that something like this and also something like the Coconuts are a nice time capsule to watch vaudeville performers as they were coming off of the cusp of vaudeville before getting into movies. So it, it does provide a record of not the exact thing, but an approximation of what it would have been like to see these folks on stage. Um, yes. And, and um, I'm certainly with, when it regards to Jack, you see how he uses the violin as a prop and not really using it in true sincere form, except for one or two moments. Um, and the rest of the time he is engaging in material with the main acts. Um, I know that everybody here likes to see Jack um, hit in the face with a pie by Stan, Laurel, Stan, Stan and Ollie, because that is just a treat to watch, even if the film itself as a whole doesn't fully um, work in the long run. This film also, by the way, is the cinematic debut of the song Singing in the Rain. It's a sequence that... Uh, yeah has uh had consternation before find they found the color footage eventually but there's um uh they, it, not everything's hooked into um the print that's available through warner archive but it is available if you guys want to seek it out um and buster keaton's in that scene yep so. buster keaton is in the <laughs> he looks happy to be there <laughs> <laughs> talking about somebody yes, yeah uh, but literally, he literally swimming in it so um yeah, but a, a lovely thing to think about with Keaton actually too is is that um, Criterion put out the cameraman not too long ago and includes a documentary with James Karen um, breaking down Buster Keaton um, and his fights with MGM, which is a great uh, watch yeah. if if folks out there want to check that out. It is available. I'll provide links in the chat after this whole affair. Um, so Jack is by all accounts through Fathalberg's eyes. Pretty successful to the point where in Benny's memoir, he says that they upped his salary and then they just wouldn't put him in anything. They didn't give him anything to do. Other studios tried to grab Jack and MGM um, and Thalberg said no. Uh, and uh, basically, Jack spends a lot of time playing golf with Mary in Hollywood and not <laughs> making movies. They put him in another film called Chasing Rainbows, which we won't talk too much about because Jack's barely in it and um, the rest of the, the the movie itself in its surviving form is missing several key musical sequences mm -hmm. um, uh, but it is a movie that I think sh when Jack's on screen he's the one that's shining but it's also he's not given the greatest material in the world mm -hmm. um, the, the exhibitors for this film recalled it as chasing customers uh, in Jack's ah. memoir <laughs> And uh, um, Zach, if if I can, um, whenever, just give me a wave because mm -hmm. I'd like to relate what was going on then is a lot like what's going on now. Forget without COVID, you've got 
every media form in crisis. Mm -hmm. um, you've got uh, today, you've got the movie industry wrecked by by COVID, but also yep. um, superhero movies driving everything off the screen. Right. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you've got network television dying. You've got Netflix, this whole new way of uh, streaming media that doesn't go through televisions or movie theaters taking off. You've got performers today struggling as in what what, what medium do I want to be in? Where do I put, you know, how do I make my bets? I could be betting wrong. Jack Benny and the media industries were going through something very, very similar in mm -hmm. 1929 talkies turned everything upside down yep. vaudeville was at its peak but you could already tell it was crashing yeah um uh you know that's and so jack benny as well as everybody else is going what am i going to do what am i going to do what am i going to do am i going to stick to one medium am i going to put my foot in different ones in the same way that Irving Thalberg picked Jack because he was the number one MC at the palace between Jack and Frank Fay. They were the sort of leading, um, that, those kind of figures in a, in a rival medium. And here is Thalberg trying to position the movies into something that he considers classier. Yeah. Like big city vaudeville. So as I said, when, when you consider um, uh, the more historical context, you see, you both see people trying desperately to experiment with things. We see a lot of careers crashing and burning yeah. for various reasons. And it's in a way, it's a miracle that, uh, that Jack uh, had a, a foot in so many different things, but found a way of somehow continuing them. Yeah. So. And and blah, I, blah, blah. I, I no, you're all good. I no, that's why we we want we want your expertise on this, Leonard. Do you have anything? You, know, to you could almost slice this early talkie period, uh, just snip it out of Jack's filmography, and you wouldn't miss it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you wouldn't be missing anything truly relevant. Uh, it's kind of a, a, a giant asterisk. <laughs> uh, be, Truly, yeah. Because it, it it was not part of the flow of his career. Uh, it was, if anything, an interruption, as Kathy was saying. Mm -hmm. And um, that 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 interruption that would end up it, it ended up benefiting Jack because he left um, MGM. Well, exactly. But it was his determination to broadcast from California because all this interruption of going back east and west and east and west is why he had 10 announcers before Don <laughs> Wilson, why he had so many bands, because everybody he used in New York could not travel with him when MGM says, get out here and make films. So in a way, he's also a little bit of a victim being by wanting to have both these careers. Um, the NBC is going, oh, no, you're back in New York. And, and MGM is going, oh, no, you're in Hollywood. And Jack was among the first and biggest stars in 1936 to permanently move to the West Coast to mm -hmm. say, I'll pay the charges to originate our, co our shows from Hollywood. And he brought a whole bunch of other people, not Fred Allen, but he brought a whole other, a lot of other talent West with him. Yep. So we may not think of these films as successful, but as a kind of career, um, uh, when I say a wrench in the works, that's in a way how they're most significant. Yep. And, and what's more, once he, once he moves out to California, he is brought back into the MGM fold with it's in the air. 
Um, and then uh, in the same year, yeah, well, in the same year, we're going to talk about another one. Um, in the same year, we get a sequel to the Broadway Melody, which was another early sound effort on MGM's part. This one called the Broadway Melody of 1936. Um, it was uh, the, the sequel so grand they had to advance it a year. And uh, in this uh, in this point in Jack's film career, he is really being assumed into con man personas and showbiz hucksters. Um, whether he's playing a shady producer or a scheming producer or a guy who has a fun trip in an air balloon. Uh, lots of things happen uh, in Jack's film life at MGM. And uh, it's uh, the Broadway of Melody of 1936 um, is a film that I think it it falls into this weird category of we need to show off our stars, whether established or new. What's a good vehicle for it? I know a showbiz story. Um, there are films in this realm that are more successful at it than others. Um, obviously, a counterpoint to Jack's film career is Bob Hope. Bob Hope had a radio career very successful because his tr- persona was able to translate better to the to a consistent screen presence but before even the radio show fully kicks off broadcast in 1930 big broadcast in 1938 gives bob hope this shining moment and the movie itself is pretty fun um at least for me um and with jack in the broadway melody of 1936 he plays a uh, basically a gossip reporter for a radio column um who is teamed up with other people. This is another thing about Jack's uh, film career at this point. And I don't know if anybody else on the panel has noticed this. You see that he gets paired with people as if they're trying to create a comedy team. Um, so like in it's in the air, he has Ted Healy um, in um, uh, which doesn't really work. And then in Broadway melody, they had Sid Silvers who has some interesting history with Jack. <laughs> As Kathy brought up last night. Oh, well, they were actually, they buried the hatchet long, uh, pretty soon after 1932 and, and could stand each other. So there you go. Um, I, now, Leonard, I want to ask you about Broadway Melody of 1936 because I, I don't know how to process a movie where Robert Taylor doesn't want Eleanor Powell to hang around with him constantly. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, MGM was building up Eleanor Powell be a major musical star and i think that's the main thrust of the film uh uh, i think they were less interested in investing in jack benny Mm long-term potential uh star uh you know it's uh it's evident on the screen yeah (laughs) they give him a lot of uh physical shtick to do especially when robert taylor keeps coming in to punch him in the face that's a Mm -hmm. that's a fun time for anybody who hasn't watched it because at one point jack wears a catcher's mask (laughs) because he's prepared to take robert taylor's blows um which as everybody who's watching probably knows robert taylor of course would end up becoming mr barbara stanwick and um (laughs) uh, we would hear robert taylor a lot on jack's radio shows as well as barbara um the film itself um you know it doesn't do anything for jack really at this point he leaves mgm and signs with paramount paramount puts him in two films um before we get to our next big topic here um big broadcast in 1937 which um it's a thing and the uh call the movie college holiday which is a major thing but we don't have time to talk about the baggage of college holiday because the plot alone will drive me up a wall for an hour (laughs) I will say, though, I don't know if anybody here 
uh, enjoys the movie or not on a on a curio level, but I do like the scene in that movie where George and Gracie are riding a chariot through town. Um, aside from that, I I keep scratching my head. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, a comedy about eugenics, guys. It's it's the laugh yeah. riot of the century. <laughs> yeah. But um, and then his third film at Paramount is Artists and Models. Um, now it's kind of significant to my mind for two reasons. One is we really see this, uh, we see the first film he works on with Raoul Walsh. Raoul Walsh, not a uh, director to throw off to the side. This is a man who helped define many elements of the gangster genre with films like The Roaring Twenties, and he's had a career that stretches as far back as silent film. Um, he would end up working again with Jack on a film that we will talk about near the end here, but um, this big change for jack is that this is really where jack is the leading man he is the main build this is this is his movie with ida lupino and the others kind of in the background his character is driving the plot for the most part here there's no ted healy there's no sid silvers sadly there's no burns and allen but whatever you know like they they can hang out outside all the petty girls yes (laughs) what the, the key zach the key to this film and the reason that it has any significance at all which is arguable, is that it's his first film where his radio writers contribute to the script. Yes. And it makes all the difference in the world. Yep. yep. You can tell that, uh, you could tell at that point that Morrow and Boulogne were able to grab a hold of the material and say, mm-hmm. well, no, 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 no. Um, and actually, what's more, in artists and models we have a radio reference to jack benny where he casually hears him on himself on the radio as he's walking by um and uh <laughs> there there he get he gets a nonplussed review from his companion there <laughs> um going like hey he's he's fine um and this film also has a wonderful musical number constructed by vincent minnelli uh called public melody number one um, with uh, Louis Armstrong at the fold. Um, now, aside from obvious connotations involving Martha Ray, the musical sequences in blackface. Yes, so, uh, but um, yeah. and, and I, you know, outside of that, it's a musical sequence that really showcased clearly Vincent Minnelli was a person you needed to watch, um, yeah. which he would obviously, you know, when he finally gets to th- something like Cabin in the Sky, working with Eddie Anderson, you can see that the the talent is not only blooming; it's ready to shine bright as all it can be. Um, in this film though, Jack is still kind of a con man, but he's evolved. He's allowed to have some form of emotion. Um, one thing about the film, even though I don't like absolutely love it is that there are moments with him and Ida Lupino where I actually, as a viewer get to watch Jack show vulnerability on screen, but it's so slight because he's trying to keep up with this con man persona. Um, and, it, and by I say con man, I mean like he's trying to scheme his way into getting a million dollar deal for the artists and models ball, which haven't we all had that problem in our lives, you know, trying to organize the artists and models ball. Um, but I found when watching it multiple times before this is that when you have Jack inter- interacting with cartoonists by the end of the film and trying to, again, shove in this comic partner routine, it, it falls a little flat. He's he's doing the best with the material that he can, um, but regardless of that fr- frustration, you know, like you if if you haven't watched a Raoul Walsh comedy ever, you might want to give it a shot because 
it's interesting how he's able to keep up with madcap madness, um, which I have to imagine doesn't, it doesn't hurt if you've had to keep up with the madcap action that comes into a gangster movie of the early of the late thirties into the early forties. Um, my personal favorite is college swing. Um, because that's a movie about learning what it's like if Gracie Allen won run a college and, um, the results are delightful. Um, <laughs> and who doesn't like the slate brothers who doesn't, I mean, that, they're fun. <laughs> um, and, um, and actually Walsh's direction, he, he, I, I found it interesting that artists and models does work as a cohesive factor, despite the fact that it splits up a bunch with variety musical numbers, not the least of which is a terrifying puppet show with Ben Blue involved. That um, is, um, it's kind of like nightmare fuel that uh, might scare my nephew down the line. Um, who knows? You know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna be cruel and show that to him. But, but 1937 comes and goes. He's got these two films. He does artists and models abroad, which I will confess is a film that I have not seen because there is no real readily readily available copy to this day. Well, then you have you have the pleasure awaiting you of seeing Jack Benny and the Yacht Club Boys in the oh. same movie. <laughs> I love the Yacht Club Boys. Uh, it, Laura has it in glorious VHS. All right, Laura, you're sending it to me, right? <laughs> I am. Woo! I am. I just, uh oh, uh oh. Sounds like we need to burn a DVD. Uh, you know, uh, uh, somehow get it streaming. Yeah, I'll rip it. Or... Yeah. Um. And but so this time comes and goes, and now we're gonna enter into Mark Sandrich territory, guys. Well, the only good thing I can say about artists and models abroad was that Jack talked about it a lot mm -hmm. on the radio show. Yep. So Variety and film critics said this movie sucks, but it brought in a fair amount of the box office mm -hmm. because Jack, you remember when he did the scenes with um with Rochester doing the love scenes of uh, yep. who's Connie Bennett's uh, Bill, Joe, yeah, Bennett. Bill, embarrass me. That's embrace me. Yeah, yeah you know. <laughs> So, um, uh, uh, there's a marvelous book by Susan Omer called George Gallup in Hollywood and George Gallup, who we know from the, um, uh, the political polls and things like that. He was hired at about this time to come out to Hollywood because Hollywood is going, we don't know how to reach our audiences. We don't know what kind of movies to make. And Gallup started pointing out that Jack Benny, by talking about these even lousy movies so much on the radio was providing millions of dollars of free publicity. Mm-hmm. And 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 earning a lot, a lot of money for Paramount. That is what's going to help Paramount make the decision to bring in Mark Sandrich. Yes, and and, and I wanted I wanted to ask you a question on that. So, like, not only is he providing this free publicity, but this is something that is interesting. And I don't know how many people here on the panel have listened to these on mass like I do when I go to sleep at night. But there's a distinctive decision to not actually reveal the plots of these movies when they're right. uh, referencing them on the radio shows. They give like a vague plot and then a vague love scene for Jack to mess up somehow. Yes. Um, and I don't know if there is a reason for that, but it's interesting. Oh, yeah. What is the oh, reason? Yeah. It, it, it's well, what I learned when he did all the movie parodies on his show, that the movie industry was so worried that um if if you if the great audience thought that they'd seen enough of the movie uh hearing it over the radio that they wouldn't plunk down their money at the box office this why is how jack gets away for free mm -hmm. exactly this is what eventually gets him in trouble with that that um television version of 
um, a gaslight. Yep, gaslight. Yep. Which... So because finally, uh, you know, I mean, Hollywood had figured it out. As long as the uh, parody people and the radio people didn't give away the plot, you could do these things. But so, yeah, I'm sorry. No, it's but fine. It turns out there's a bizarre reason for everything. No, it's a- and actually it, it leads me to say, if you look on the various different radio apps, you will see um, uh, one of the artists and models, um, uh, episodes related episodes has Jack trying to explain the love triangle. And it's the closest that I've seen to him actually revealing yeah. the plot, but he uses yeah. it as a joke rather than a plot revelation. <laughs> um, and you're right. We, now we get Mark Sandrich in here. Um, in 1938, Sandrich is a director that is not really talked about unless you're talking about top hat. Um, but he was a proven director starting in shorts and then had worked his way through Paramount brings him in and Mark Sandridge from, from RKO. Yeah. And their goal, Mark said, sets upon himself. I'm going to fix Jack Benny, <laughs> which is a daunting task given where Jack's film career had been up to this point as we've been discussing. But his idea was very, very simple transplant the radio character directly onto film. And we start off with Man About Town from 1939, which is originally is a story conceived by Zion Z. Myers and Oscar-nominated screenwriter Alan Scott, uh, who worked on So Proudly We Hail, Top Hat, and Roberta, the ad- adaptation of Roberta, not um, the show, Broadway show, obviously. Um, and the full scripting would fall into the hands of Maury Riskind. Um, Riskind at this point had already been nominated for an Academy Award for My Man Godfrey um, and had already worked with four wonderful brothers who had suddenly become three wonderful brothers. Um, I don't know what happened to that fourth one. I'm, I hope he's doing okay. Um, and uh, the uh, uh, his script is then basically acquired by Mark Sandrich and Mark Sandrich retools it in pretty much entirely. Uh, to cater to the Jack persona. Um, I wanted to ask Kathy um, and Leonard, when you see a movie like Man About Town, do you get a sense that there is a conflict, a, a conflict between personality and an original script that gets retooled? Because the Jack persona and a generalized comedy plot kind of intermix in the strangest way. I'd love to hear from Leonard. I've yacked a lot. Oh, well, you know, I'm not crazy about any of the sandwich. <laughs> That's okay. It's totally and, fine. And I, uh, but it certainly wasn't for lack of trying. First off, we have to emphasize that Mark Sanders was at uh, the peak of his career. Mm-hmm. He had just directed five Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers movies, which were among the most popular films of the 1930s and, and beyond. Uh, so he was in a, 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 a very enviable position. Mm-hmm. And when Paramount brought him in, he was kind of a golden boy. Mm-hmm. So to assign that guy to work with Jack Benny shows how much uh, uh, confidence Paramount had in his ability to turn Jack into a, uh, a box office star. Yeah. Whether as leading man or, or, or as a variation on his... Uh, uh, radio uh, uh, yeah but the thing I find interesting is uh, just a quick quick sidebar sure I had the great pleasure and privilege of becoming friendly with Mark Sanders's widow 
Oh. Frida Sandridge, uh, who lived to be 100. And and Mark died at 45, so blessed you. Um. And he, he died uh, tragically young, mm -hmm. and Frida never remarried. She was so in love with him uh, that uh, she, she, she couldn't see herself with someone else. She raised two sons, one of whom became uh, a top television comedy director, Jay Sandrick. Yep. And the other, Mark Sanders Jr., had a more varied career working even on Broadway and the uh, writer and a lyricist and, and in Hollywood as well. And um, Frida told me that Jack and Mary Benny were among the very few show business people that they socialized with. Oh, wow. Um, That's really so they, good. So they actually had uh, a relationship more than just director and star. When it, and it makes, it makes sense because I, when I watch the films, regardless of how I feel about each individual one, it does feel like Jack is able to be a little bit more loose in the films, even though, as I said, he is in this box with his persona, and also now we're transplanting the radio character wholesale mm -hmm. I know it's not where Jack wanted to be, but it's certainly different than what he had been getting. Man About Town yeah. for, um, I talked about it with Laura for three hours and 40 minutes on my podcast, which um, I'm sorry for anybody who slogged through the entire thing and had to hear my voice for that long. But the, uh, the, the one thing I will always say about the film is that it's interesting to watch Jack's persona inserted in such, in that way to tell a story that is very much just a generic, you know, get the girl story by the very end, or uh, as I was calling it, the typical learn learn confidence as a man trope in a rom-com, which is uh, a, a trope that we are kind of thankfully evolving from. Um, but uh, the one thing that I wanted to bring up in regards to the writing of this film is that um, we had a theory on the recording that I got confirmed by Kathy is that it seems like, Morrow and Boulogne had some hands on this um, in terms of adjusting these characters. But one thing we want to note, we don't only, we not only have Phil Harris in this film, we also have Eddie Anderson, Eddie Rochester, Anderson, the great, wonderful Rochester that we love. Um, this is his first big film with Jack. Um, he had been in films prior to this, obviously in the same year that he does this. He also does gone with the wind. Um, he has played Rochester in Thanks for the Memory, and he's also appeared in Honolulu at this point. So Rochester's coming in to finally work with Jack, and there is a there is a decided um, mishmash between the Benny Rochester dynamic on radio and typical portrayal of a servant or butler of the era. Um, that kind of maneuver around in the film and kind of like dip in and out. But something that's interesting about this film and why I think Man About Town is worth discussing in the long run um, is that there are moments in this film where taboos are broken. And by taboos, I do mean ultimately that Jack and Rochester sit down at the same table together. Um, mm -hmm. this, is a, this is an imagery that if, if it were anybody else, Southern censors would have torn this to shreds. Um, and... Uh, because of the Jack and Rochester persona and the Rochester character being as popular as he was, it's kind of interesting that Jack and Rochester almost accidentally break barriers for film. They allow things to happen that would later have to go through a whole other reckoning prior to that. 
but it starts here. And while you do get a mishmash of portrayal that delves into sadder territory and unfortunate territory, there are moments that literally uplift you and go like, this is the beginning of what we then see as a stepping of the stepladder towards where we are today, where this is, you know, we still have a lot of work to do, but there is, you know, there's precedent for Benny and Anderson having started this. Um, sure. And uh, actually, I wanted to... And, oh, sorry. Yeah. No, please. Sorry. I, I was going to ask you, Kathy, we also get Phil Harris in this film. <laughs> What's your, what is everybody's it. impression of Phil Harris, who ends up becoming a much better voice actor in the long run? <laughs> exactly. Had a little dropout there. Oh, okay. Sorry about that. Uh, Kathy, I was... Uh, Kathy, can you hear me Okay. Yeah. Okay. I was going to ask what you think about Phil Harris in this film. Prior to this, he had been in a short film called So This Is Harris, which had ended Directed up... Directed by Mark Sandrich. Yeah. So, um, uh, uh, reviews of that short said it's the first time music has really been translated to film in that way. So, it shows Sandrich's... Um, uh, of sure hand and creativity of taking like in all the uh, Astaire Rogers films, making music and and dance and things like that sort of flow in a in a film kind of way. So and yeah. soft porn with that shower scene. That's <laughs> 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 that short got Mark Sandrich uh, promoted to feature films at RKO. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, it's it's still one that people can watch online if they're interested. It is a it's a very fascinating like short documentary that like gives us the Phil Harris persona. I was gonna say though, because we're gonna move into Buck Benny and Love Thy Neighbor because they're kind of intertwined for a reason. But Phil Harris, he seems like he's very um, still uncomfortable on fil- on camera. Oh sure, um, he's not an actor, you know. I mean, so. I mean, he's, well, well, he's not used to film. Yeah. He would not be in films if it were not for his role on the Benny show. So, yep. you know, uh, uh, you, you can't blame him. Oh, no, so, absolutely. I'm glad, he was, I'm glad he had the opportunity and it built him a nice sort of side career in, in film for a while. So, uh, yep. And, um, but, yeah. oh, go ahead. I, yeah. I was just going to say that it was really interesting to research the reaction to Man About Town from the African-American community, mm-hmm. uh, which which was uh, both um, people who had um, moved north to cities like, you know, Chicago and New York and or out west, but also um, people in the African-American people in the south adored this film. They knew in an instant, you know, that here was finally a little crack in the, you know, in the solid racist portrayals and and the total separation of black and white characters. And so uh, they uh, they advertised the film at, at Southern black segregated movie theaters as Rochester in Man About Town. And they would do that with the next two. So, yep. And there's a, and there's definitely references to the popularity of it to the point where they would mention it in sketches as well. Like uh, that, I, I went to go see my new picture, and Phil would go, "How was Rochester in it?" And that's like yeah. that's literally the amount of like popularity that he had. Yeah. Um, and in when when we get Buck Benny rides again, I'd argue we even get a further progression because. I don't know if anybody here, regardless of what anybody might think of Buck Benny Rides Again, I'm personally a fan of it because it is a uh, a curio of Benny's character at that point and a film version of the show, essentially. Um, 
uh, based again on a story by Z Myers, but this time fully written by Maro and Beloin, the gr- wonderful Maro and Beloin. Um, but we get Rochester and Teresa Harris singing My My. That's a number that, even if you don't like the film, you watch that clip isolated on YouTube. It is one of the greatest, uh, portra- like, it's one of these great moments where you get to watch Eddie Anderson's footwork in action and you get to watch this wonderful romantic comedy blossom inside of this otherwise, you know, formulaic Jack Benny movie <laughs> where you have basically like you you get a you get a whole story in there where I'm just like I want that movie right now. Like <laughs> I want that whole side movie. Um and uh and the and Buck Benny Rides again also features um a a decided like well, okay, we're not even going to beat around the bush anymore. Man About Town was a sleeper hit, as Kathy indicated to me with some information that she provided for me. Buck Benny, they just said, like, no, okay, let's just call him Jack now. Um, sure. And it, it, yes. Go ahead. No, it was one of the top, uh, it was one of the top five films of the entire year. Mm-hmm. And this is like 1939. <laughs> so it's the year ago with the wind, and it's one of the top five films of the year. So uh, yeah. box office, I mean, absolutely. So, uh, um, and uh, and Buck Benny would end up being uh, being just as a success. And um, so uh, when we get to love thy neighbor, I have a question for Leonard. We've talked a little bit about Benny on film. What's your opinion of Fred Allen on film? <laughs> well, film was not his medium. <laughs> that sort of sums it up yeah uh if he had one pure golden moment and that's when he got to make a film called it's in the bag yep in 1945 yeah. and there you have the fred allen we all know and love mm-hmm. and uh and it's a it's it's a very enjoyable film uh, and the sequence with Jack in that is terrific. Yeah. I'm president so, of the Jack Benny fan club. <laughs> shows off everybody uh, at their best. Yep. You get uh, William Bendix in there too. So that's always fun. By that time, Fred Allen had had, like Jack, many, many disappointments. Mm-hmm. Hollywood uh, set him up in, in, uh, for, for failure on more than one occasion. Yep. Because he had done um, Thanks a Million prior to this, um, and then he was more content to stay on the East Coast and not deal with the Hollywood well, riffraff. He also had tremendous health problems and had to leave, cancel his show mm-hmm. for a year and set everybody free. You know, I mean, the Minerva Pius was suddenly looking for work. So you're right, tremendous challenges. You're yeah. absolutely right, Lenny. Yeah, so. and, um, and actually, it's in the bag. I'll always mention this whenever I can. Uh, co-written by Alma Revel, uh, Mrs. Alfred Hitchcock. Um, and, um, a wonderful, um, uh, I, I think it's like, it's interesting to do a double feature with that and the 12 chairs. Cause they are essentially based upon the same story, which yeah. if anybody hasn't seen the 12 chairs, it's a Mel Brooks movie that looks like an art piece and it's fantastic. And I love it. Um, but anyway, love thy neighbor is a film that tries to really capture the Benny Allen feud. And we just earlier in the convention, we just had Stuart Kanan who kicked off the feud talking to us live about this. So this is kind of an extension. This is what happens when a feud on radio goes too far. You get a movie like love thy neighbor, which I love because I like watching Jack and Fred on screen together. Anytime I can. That being said, (laughs) uh, the, the, it doesn't fully work. And the reasoning that I brought up in my notes, which are, 
Um, I, I, I apologize to Kathy and Leonard for my 18 page essay that they, <laughs> Wonderful. but, um, the, uh, uh, is that ultimately if I'm going to get the Benny Allen feud, I want the Benny Allen feud. I don't need a love story with, um, Mary Martin, uh, as lovely as she is. Um, and, uh, my heart belongs to daddy is a great number, but it doesn't belong in this movie. And um, I'd love your reactions if you can recall this. At the very end of this movie, we see a very unfortunate sight of Jack and Fred Allen looking dressed up to look like babies, baby, baby versions of themselves. And it's it's face palm worthy. Yeah, it's it's nightmare fuel. <laughs> um, but um, we'll move on though because we've got. Well, well, oh, go ahead. Okay, oh, just really quickly, it was also a huge moneymaker for Paramount. Um, it was critically savaged. Um, you, you, uh, Zach, you got that Howard Barnes uh, review that said this is not yep. cinema. This is and and Fred was miserable. He hated making it. Mark Sandwich was miserable, and he then abandoned the two of them and went to go make movies with Bing Crosby. Yeah. Um. Then and so uh, certainly the Crosby Hope pair would be all that you could hope for with radio um uh char- you know i mean radio characters taking a sort of feud or a, a contentious fun relationship uh to film so it's just a shame that jack and fred couldn't do road to yeah road to love thy neighbor or something like that that'd be but, uh, that, that would have been an interesting one actually I, I do have a question for both of you on that so there was a contention with critics into how these films were received in the in the grand scheme of intermediary uh, cross promotion. Um, so as in in this case, film adapting radio directly. Obviously, we are dealing with an IP world and a franchise world. Um, mm-hmm. So how do you like? Do you think that that we are kind of within this same realm where we're trying to basically? You know, like there, there's one section of the industry that's grabbing onto things the way they did with radio comedies. Now, it's kind of different to me because some of those radio comedy films do end up being fun, but they're not obviously the high art that we discuss in the long run. Well, I can't imagine that uh, serious gamers, uh, you know, <laughs> love movies just because they're based on video games. Yeah. One of those things that sounds good at the moment, I guess in some executive's office, uh, but it doesn't necessarily play out. Mm-hmm. And and uh, ideas are sometimes best left to the medium for which they're created. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, uh, there's some theater pieces. Hey, you could never make a good movie out of A Chorus Line, one of the all-time great Broadway musicals. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't meant to be on film. It was meant to be experienced in a theater. And uh, it's, it's the same with, with any number of other examples we can go through from Lum and Abner to, uh, you know, Amos and Andy to. Sure. Uh, yeah. Fibber McGee and Molly. Oof. Yeah. So with yeah. Charlie McCarthy, bad movies. Uh, yeah. Although I will always uh, cherish fun and fancy free with Bergen and McCarthy because of um, the, uh, one of the first times I actually ever saw Leonard Moulton on anything was the behind the scenes featurette of that. And he had informed me uh, through that featurette that uh, they had a radio show. And I'm like, how does that work? And uh, <laughs> needless to say, my 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 life was changed. Um, now, we've got a couple more things to go through. And we've got a little bit limited time. I don't know how we're doing, Laura. But um, I'll be quiet. Uh, I wanted to touch on. Th- okay. and, you, and you have a couple of uh, Q&As. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, 
I really want to touch on the like this back half of Jack's career where he goes into Charlie's aunt and George Washington slept here and then the horn blows at midnight. These are three films that basically give him the chance to not play the Jack character, but they carry with them traits of them. Um, and I think Charlie's aunt for my end is one that I've rewatched the most in going through things for this series. Cause I just love watching Jack and Edmund Gwen interact with each other <laughs> on screen. Um, and George Washington slept here. I feel like it's uh it's a movie that is really wonderful to watch, especially with Mr. Blanding's build his dream home, but it suffers from a problem that kind of permeates these three films is that Jack is not a slapstick comic actor. Um, if anything, he's better with human moments, as we're going to talk about with Lubitsch. Um, I was curious to know what you guys think of these three films um, in whatever order you want to discuss it. But um, I think they're, like for the most part, very enjoyable, and you can't go wrong with them. But they're not obviously up to the snuff of serving Jack specifically. I think they're pretty good movies mm-hmm. uh, on the whole. And uh, Charlie's Ant is kind of a foolproof property. Yeah. Filmed so many Wait, times, so many five, ten times. Yeah. Uh, George Washington slept here is, is basically sound material, as you say, uh, not so very different from uh, Mr. Blanding's or a generation later, The Money Pit. <laughs> yes. And I have an I have an inordinate affection for the horn blows of the night. Good. Uh, I'm glad I we're. Just, all... Yeah. I just enjoy that movie. We can. And, we, uh, we, let's talk about it because. It's the movie that Jack joked about the most. Okay, I just I I want to get there. All I want to say is that those three. I mean, um, uh, 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 Charlie Sant and George Washington slept here, and the meanest man in town were all because Jack Benny was top box office. Mm-hmm. Um, Paramount yep. let him go, and he had a a, a very rare double contract with Warners and Fox. And they were putting him, Jack, into big Broadway successes. Jose Ferrer made his career um, as a, he had just graduated from like Princeton. And he appeared in an off-Broadway version of Charlie's Aunt that made him a star at like 23 years old. And so why you have the 50 year old Jack, Bank. but so um, Charlie's Aunt and the meanest man in the world had been a, um, uh, uh, Yankee Doodle Dandy, whatever his. Uh, George uh, M. Cohen. Thank you, a Cohen play, and and the meanest man. Uh, so uh, there was a reason for these things. Jack was top box office, and these two other studios said, "Aha, we'll try and take this big, you know, this big money earner and put him into adaptations." The uh, George Washington slept here. They switched it. Um, uh, Jack, but, but Jack's character is the female part of the play. When it was a big hit on Broadway, mm-hmm. um, it was the man was in the background and it was the wife doing all the things. So it's kind of interesting to play with the gender dynamics of that. But please go on to the horn blows at midnight. Well, I, the reason I want to bring it up ultimately, but first of all, thank you for bringing that up because that is an important point. This is a studio system that has a top box office star with Charlie's aunt being in the top grossing films of 1941 and they still can't find anything for him. That right, is, right. it is astounding to say the least, but it does bring to my mind the idea that 
any studio, no matter how much of a hit they've got on their hands, they can't always run with the football to a, to a touchdown each and every time. This is a business of subjectivity and also of risks. And at, unfortunately, not every risk pays off. But it's kind of the beauty of film. Not every film works for some people, but sometimes it works for others. Um, and with The Hornblows at Midnight, uh, I, I, I'll say it up front. I know that Jack's not good with slapstick. I know that Jack is not, you know, like meant to be doing that. I would rather have him in human moments, but I got to love a movie that has a giant coffee cup set piece and Franklin Pangborn hanging around in it. You know, like that, that who doesn't love Franklin Pangborn looking at the camera as if though he's just been insulted. <laughs> you know? um, and I, I would love for you guys, if you could tell me real quick before we get to hor- uh, to, to be or not to be, what what is your take on this film and do you think Jack could have kept making films after the horn blows at midnight? Sure, why not? <laughs> I love you that know, answer. I'm yeah. Why not? Yeah. Uh, and the horn blows at midnight was never as unsuccessful as, as he portrayed it to be. Mm-hmm. Or or as bad as he portrayed it to be. Yeah. I do think it holds some sort of world record for most mileage ever obtained from a supposed flop movie. Yes. Uh, and it's... he was still making, he had Jack Warner appeared on, uh, on Jack's radio show nine or 10 years later. <laughs> to beg and, him not to do the horn blows at midnight on the exactly. Ford theater. Yeah. Yes. And uh, that's, it's, it's a hilarious exchange that he has with Warner. Oh yeah, absolutely. So, he, he also tries to tell Jack that he can't read lines. <laughs> can I add, can I get five trivia points mm-hmm. for, Saying that one of the one of the writers of the Horn Blows at Midnight was James V. Kern, mm-hmm. one of the Yacht Club boys. Aha! We're bowing. We're bowing right now. This is this wow. is well, that is the world goes around. This is trivia so trivial nobody cares. <laughs> you know what? I do now. I have this on record for posterity because we're we're archiving this convention, and I'm going to keep that uh, trivia moment. In... For this crowd, you'd be surprised. Oh yeah. no, <laughs> we we love we love any tidbit we can get here. Um, and now let, let's talk about to be or not to be before we get to a Q and A here with the lovely folks who have some questions. Um, Lubitsch had the had the Lubitsch touch. I mean, that's an obvious statement beyond a shadow of a doubt. There, um, he uh, he basically told Jack. I know your secret. And Jack went, what? Hmm? And, you know, Lubitsch replied, you're not a com, you're not a comedian. You're an actor playing the part of a comedian. And Lubitsch basically tapped in with that one simple sentiment, the ability to put Jack on film. Um, For anybody who has not seen to be or not to be, first of all, never been a better time to watch that movie. Um, But more specifically, um, this is a film that, takes a lot of risks and Jack is willing to play in that sandbox at the time that this film was released. I'm going to share a slideshow with you guys here real quick. We're going to get a glimpse at this. So, um, uh, Jack had basically, sorry, give me one second here. Um, Jack was basically given the, uh, the qualities that best personify him on screen. We've got vanity. We've got showmanship, hammery, anxiety and perplexity, false toughness, and a flawed but hu- but relatable uh, empathy. 
that permeates the movie. Joseph Tura is sort of a, uh, he's definitely a hammy figure as we see, but he has a spirit to him. He has a purpose. He obviously has passion if he's trying to figure out why his wife, Carol Lombard, is hanging around with the guy who would later on host Unsolved Mysteries, So, which is a mystery we've all liked to solve. Um, and Lubitsch, who had gotten him into this point, um, there was a book, the quote by Mark, uh, in Milt Josephsberg's book um, that, Milf Josephsburg's book has been contended a bit, but I love this quote because it does feel the most true. Lubitsch was the only director who ever directed me. This is Jack talking. In, in practically all of my earlier pictures, the directors would say, Jack, you know so much more about comedy than I do. Play the scene the way you feel it. And the only trouble was I knew lots about radio comedy, a little bit about stage comedy, and nothing about movies. Lubitsch told me at the start of the picture I was to forget everything I knew about screen acting, which wasn't difficult. Then, prior to every single scene, for every move, gesture, and speech, he acted out exactly what he wanted me to do. He was a lousy actor, but a great director. And it's interesting because as a director, you normally do not want to just act it out for your um, right. actor. But he was, he was known for that. He didn't just do that with Jack. He did that with every one of the actors he worked with. Mm -hmm. And some of them had to kind of grit their teeth <laughs> and, uh, and put up with it, uh, but but they all adored Lubitsch, so yeah, they, they didn't mind that he did that. Yep, and how could you not adore Lubitsch? I mean, that, talk about a career that, like, to be or not to be, is my favorite of his films. But he has so many more classics under his belt, like Shop Around the Corner and Ninotchka. I actually love Ninotchka. That's one of my favorite films from 1939. Not not a question. Um, but this is a film, as we discussed, had, had takes a lot of risks. It takes a lot of risks because it's covering the Nazis during World War II. Um, and there's actually definitely a Jack story where his father saw the film and got upset in seeing his son in a Nazi uniform. And Jack had to basically tell his father, go watch the entire movie. I'm against the Nazis. Um, and then uh, apparently Meyer Kubelski saw it 500 more times after that point. Um, but the critics of the era did not really appreciate this, um, this film. Uh, Bosley Crowther, who I... If you've listened to my show, I'm not you a huge fan of him, but um, he wrote for his review for the New York Times, it's hard to imagine how anybody can take without batting an eye a shattering air raid upon Warsaw right after a sequence of farce or the spectacle of Mr. Benny playing a comedy scene with a Gestapo corpse. Mr. Lubitsch has an odd sense of humor and a tangled script when he made this film. He's right, and that's part of the reasons why I love the movie is because it takes those risks, um, and it's a dark comedy that works exactly how it's supposed to. So critics of the era were more or less um, not sure how to receive material lampooning Hitler at the time. And we don't know how we would have reacted. Yeah, absolutely. At that time, you know, uh, uh, we, you know I, it's one of my favorite movies of all time, uh, uh, but yeah. I might have been sensitive to the you know to the the, the the idea of making fun of nazis yeah uh, yeah i can't tell yeah exactly no yeah you have to you have to you have to gauge it at its time it's not something that we can hop in the time machine and go back um yeah. Exactly. It might have started an entire second front, to quote another movie. <laughs> but another thing that's so sad is Carol Lombard's untimely death, mm -hmm. meaning that Jack did not promote this film on his show. 
if he had found, if he and, it, and his writers had found ways to talk about it on his show, um, you know, it, it, it might uh, have swayed more of the critics. The movie might have stayed around more. It might have been more important at the time. Yes. And uh, to me, that's that's a sad thing. Yeah, so. absolutely. No, that's yes. So, yeah. Well, yeah, sorry. Go ahead, Leonard. Oh, sorry. Um, no. Uh, so, yeah, Thanks this is. Muted. Oh, sorry. Oh. Sorry, that, sorry, I was muted there. Yes, no, you're right. Because he didn't promote it that way, that was another factor that doesn't allow the film to be successful as it could have been. Um, and this is a film, though, that thankfully has lived on because it's been revived constantly. Um, if anybody wants an HD copy of a Jack Benny movie, Criterion has your back with that. And it's a lovely transfer featuring uh, contributions and assistance from Laura Leibowitz here, who's been moderating this entire event. Um, Jack's film legacy lived on, though. Um, but after 1945, he's relegated to cameos. He's still trying to find properties. Uh, Laura had alluded to at one point on my show that there was talks of a biopic. And in that biopic... There was talk of Humphrey Bogart playing Jack. And um, that's an interesting prospect that I dream about now at night after hearing that information. <laughs> Apparently they were serious. He was Bogart was all for it. It was to be a parody of uh, the, the then current trend uh, mania for biography picks. Wow. So what I, well, at least what I read in Variety was they were all set to do it. So... Wow, that is yeah. Incredible. Leonard, do you know anything about that? I'm, I'm just. I do not, uh, and uh, uh, now you pique my curiosity. <laughs> okay. well, I'll give you all the research I got. I'll send, I'll send you my files. I'll happily do that. So. Oh, great! Thank you. I'll take you up on that. Um, and then, um, but by 1974, he gets basically the, um, and I know we've got to wrap up soon. I apologize, Laura. Um, but um, uh, the. In 1974, after he's made several cameos in films such as To Be or Not, or not To Be or Not To Be, it's a mad, 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 mad world. Oh, yeah. um, he uh, he is he gets the role of Al Lewis in The Sunshine Boys. There are screen tests available for folks who want to check it out on the Warner Archive release of The Sunshine Boys or on YouTube um, with Walter Matthau. The sound does not exist, unfortunately. Um, uh, but the illness that would later claim Jack's life became too harsh. Um, the role was acquiesced to Mr. George Burns, um, and this role as Al Lewis would end up creating the Burns Assance, um, which consisted with him playing, amongst other things, the role of God, which is something I still treasure. Um, and uh, this was the this would be the, the end of the road. So Horn Blows at Midnight was the last starring role for Jack on film, but Jack does continue to exist in films today because obviously, as I've shown you through these covers of films. We can still watch Jack today, uh, thanks to the lovely pr providing of copies from folks like Warner Archive and Turner Classics and um, uh, Criterion Collection. And what's more, Jack's supporting characters created a legacy where Phil Harris is known today as a Disney legend because of Baloo the Bear. Um, and Dennis Day will ever be known as Johnny Appleseed. Um, and of course, Percy Kilbride in George Washington Slept Here ends up becoming very 
famous for the Ma and Pa Kettle series. Um, and last but not least, my favorite thing to bring up to anybody who uh, watches modern day films with me every week, um, Jack makes an appearance in Deadpool 2, where uh, Ryan Reynolds has decided to actively engage with the material. Um, that's the reason why it's not just an insert of a clip. Jack, uh, Jack's uh, radio routine is playing for Blind Al as Deadpool is sneaking in to hide his cocaine. <laughs> and... Uh, Deadpool sneaks up behind Blind Al and basically gives the line, I'm thinking it over, and scares uh, Blind Al. So uh, it's interesting that even today we are still engaging with the material uh, to this day. Um, really quickly, Laura, do I have a, a quick minute for a couple questions from our Q&A audience here? Laura? Sorry, yeah. I was on mute. Yeah, we're at 428, so we have just a minute left. Okay, but, cool. One, one quick thing. Hey, Leonard, since you love trivia, um, the, the, the next act is already here. Hi, Richard. Do you I, know what Richard is famous not for? A, no rush. <laughs> <laughs> he is, Who is or was Richard? I was on the Quiz Kids program as a child and in... The spring of 1941, 80 years ago exactly, we made a trip out to Hollywood to be on the Jack Benny show. And Richard, so, hang on just a second. Sorry, I was quizzing Leonard to see if he knew who you were. <laughs> well, no, I know. Thanks, thanks to, to our newsletter, I know. <laughs> and did you, did, Richard, did you ever work with Vanessa Brown? Oh, yes, Mila Brind when she first came. You, did you know her? No, but I, I'm friendly with her daughter, Kathy Sandrich. Oh, ah. I see. Yes, Mila, you know, was a refugee. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, Vanessa was a refugee. And initially, where she came to Chicago and was in a play called Watch on the Rhine. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, as the daughter of a Nazi or something, anyway, that kind of setting. And... Uh, she was still known as Mila Brin, but later became Vanessa Brown. Yep. Um, really quickly, we need to get to Richard Williams here because I want to hear some quiz to, quiz kids stories myself, um, oh, being a fan yeah. of those episodes. But Leonard, uh -huh. Kathy, thank you very, very much for making yes, a, right. a film nerd's dream come true by getting to listen to you both talk about Jack's film legacy. This is a subject that I'm going to be carrying on in my own work down the line here within the coming year. Kathy already knows about these plans. Um, but everybody who watched this panel, thank you very much. I'm sorry we didn't have time for the questions, but I'm sure you'll all understand when I say that this was a treat to hear some expertise from two lovely human beings who have given their time to talk about the subject of Jack on celluloid. So... Um, but, back. Yep, uh, but um, and, until next time, we are running a little late, so good night, folks.
This concludes tonight's special presentation from the Jack Benny Convention. My special thanks again to Catherine Seeley and Leonard Malton. Remember, you can get Catherine's book, Jack Benny and the Golden Age of American Radio Comedy, now on Amazon. You can look out for more of Leonard Malton on his podcast, Malton on Movies, now available wherever you get your podcasts. And you can visit his website, leonardmalton.com, for more of his thoughts on film. This is Zach, signing off. Thank you, Ballyhoo listeners. Good night. Thank you.